Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Isaiah is the longest of the prophetic books. The tradition originates with a man named Isaiah ben Amos who received a very intense call to prophetic ministry. His prophecies are directed at the kingdom of Judah, and his ministry spans the reign of several of the kings. His oracles are not arranged in any chronological order, so they jump around and there's a fair amount of repetition. He prefers to use Holy One of Israel as a reference to God, and he uses it more than 30 times. The book of Isaiah as we have it is actually three books that have been stitched together. The first book is chapters 1 through 39. There's an emphasis here on the divine sovereignty and on holiness, and he urges radical trust in God. Chapters 40 through 55 are Deutero-Isaiah or 2nd Isaiah. These prophecies um, assume a background of the Babylonian Empire during Judah's exile and during Cyrus of Persia's impending conquest, which comes in 545 to 539 B.C., The emphasis here is almost entirely on hope and renewal in spite of their exile. Chapters 56 through 66 um, reflect a return after exile. So they date to 538 to 515 BC, and they are Trito-Isaiah or Third Isaiah. We see that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt, but the temple still stands in ruins. And there was a tone of joy and hope found in 2nd Isaiah that has now simply become a somber and subdued attitude. So the return from exile, which was so joyous with high hopes, has not turned out to be quite as awesome as they had hoped it would be. Isaiah became the leader of a prophetic school. So there were other prophets who clustered around him and studied under him, and they operated together. His disciples continue his tradition and work beyond his life, and that's what we have as 2nd and 3rd Isaiah. There are those who believe that all of this originates with the man, Isaiah, that he saw all of this from his time period, but there are very few modern scholars who take this position. There are four servant songs um, in Isaiah. These are stories of how the Messiah would suffer, how the chosen one would suffer and be a servant. They come in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 52. Now, some scholars include a fifth servant song in chapter 61. If that one is not considered a servant song, then all of the servant songs fall within 2nd Isaiah. Um, We'll talk about each of those as we get to them. Judaism sees the Jewish nation as the suffering servant. Christianity, however, sees Jesus, the Messiah, as the suffering servant. And we trace back the idea that the Messiah would have to suffer to Isaiah here. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the disciples and the early church saw Jesus as the suffering servant. And we know this from the number of quotations and allusions that they make to the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah is in fact foundational to understanding the entire body of prophetic work and how we view prophecy in our canon of Scripture. It was also very crucial for Wesley's Methodist movement. Let's jump in to chapter 1. Um, we're told that this occurs during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all of the nation of Judah, between the years of 742 and 687. It opens with a court scene, with an indictment of sinful Israel, where heaven and earth are the witnesses. Israel is like a rebellious child. And Isaiah uses the term Israel for all the descendants of Abraham, even though his audience is only the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesies as if they are, as they should be, one people. John Wesley turned to verses 5 and 6 often in his sermons. Verse 5 Cross-reference it with Romans 3.10 and Acts 9.5 and 6. Verse 4 is a summary of the charges. And in verse 7, when it talks about desolate, this may be a reference to the siege that Sennacherib placed upon Jerusalem in 701 B.C. Remember that these are not chronological. Verses 10 through 15 are very similar to the writings and the prophecies of his contemporaries. Amos, Micah, and Hosea are all in prophetic ministry right here around the time of Isaiah. Faithfulness is more valued than ritual observance. In fact, worship is hypocritical when justice and righteousness are disregarded. In verse 15, it says, I will not listen. That's the effect um, because hands are stained with blood. That's the cause. So God is not going to listen because our hands are stained with blood. Verses 16 and 17 give us the remedy. This is a famous list of the requirements for covenant obedience, and they are two more of John Wesley's favorite verses. In fact, the first two requirements relate to the first two general rules. The general rule of Methodism is do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Verses 18 through 20 remind us that redemption is possible. It's an invitation to negotiate a settlement. Cross-reference this with chapter 43, verse 26. We all have a choice to make, a choice to obey or not, to follow God or not. Verses 21 through 31 are going to give us a description of the degenerate city of Jerusalem. Um, God will renew the city. He will do this by judging. That's the need for further purification of the silver and by cleansing, removing the impurities. Now, the silver would not see this process as beneficial until the end. In fact, the silver would think this was destruction rather than purification. Verse 29 is a reference to pagan worship. Chapter 2 begins with another oracle or another prophecy. And this prophecy also appears in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The day to come is the day of the Lord's reign, no matter how difficult People of faith know that the day comes when the Lord will reign, and that will be established. Isaiah expected Jerusalem to be at the center of this. I, however, think about New Jerusalem, the city that comes down in the book of Revelation. In that city, all humanity will recognize their need for God and God's word, and peace will reign. In verses 5 through 22, Jacob seems to be the prophet's name for the northern kingdom of Israel, but all the nations are invited. They are guilty of idolatry, 
apostate practices, and pride. They are more influenced by foreign nations than they are by their own God. And if we are not right with God, then the balancing of the scales when God enacts justice is a terror to us. But it's not if we are right with God. Now there are three echoes of enter into the rock, almost as though they are a refrain We will enter into the rock to escape the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. Remember that there's a strong connection between prophecy and music, poetry, and the arts. So this more than likely was sung or chanted, and we hear that as the refrain. In chapter 3, we get the verdict of the court proceedings. Verse 5 tells us that they are their own punishment. God surrenders them to themselves. Cross-reference this with Romans one twenty-eight. In verse 6, it says that they will be desperate for a leader, but no one is willing. Everyone will refuse to lead. Verse 12b, the second part of that verse, is the summary of the verdict. In verses 13 through 15, we see that leaders bear responsibility for how they lead. If you step out in leadership, you become responsible for the things you encourage or tolerate under your leadership. Faithfulness is measured by how the poor fare under a leader. John Wesley used this imagery often in his teaching and instruction for Methodists. The next section of Scripture starts with verse 16 of chapter 3 and continues through verse 1 of chapter 4. These women are not victims here. They are complicit in what is happening. Their lifestyles and their arrogance make them just as guilty as the men. Now, often women were simply victims. They belonged to their fathers, and then they belonged to their husbands, and they had very little ability to influence anything. If they were conquered or taken over, the women were raped. Many of them were killed. Their children may be slaughtered, and they and their children may be taken into exile as slaves. And all that was beyond their control. But here Isaiah is saying, you're not innocent. You, you have been involved. You have encouraged what has happened. It's a fairly extensive description here. And notice the change from poetry to narrative. This probably indicates material that the prophet Isaiah is inserting because these are his words. The prophetic, if they're set off centered in lines, those are the words that he believes he is delivering for God. These are the words he's delivering to add more. From the lavish lifestyles, they're going to end up begging to become plural wives or one of many wives just to have food and somewhere to live. This is only going to be one step up from prostitution. They're going to be desperate. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 are a promise oracle. The judgments are reversed, but only for the survivors. The branch in verse 2 is the Messiah, and the survivors are the righteous remnant. He talks about things being recorded for life. This is a reference to the book of life and the book of the dead. Heavenly books that record human destiny. Take a look at Psalm 139, 16. And that record human deeds. Take a look at 69.28, Daniel 7.10, Daniel 12.1, and Malachi 3.16. Both of these books are opened in Revelation 20, verse 12, for final judgment. Um, but there will be a time when they are once again led by God, like they were during the Exodus, by a cloud of smoke and by fire. In verse 5, 
we have an oracle in verses 1 through 7, and this is one of the best known of Isaiah's prophecies, and it was a favorite of John Wesley. This is the song of a disappointed lover. The vineyard imagery is very much like that of Song of Solomon, and it's a metaphor for the lover. Um, It begins in the third person, but we are finally eventually to have it revealed that God is the owner of the vineyard. The owner has taken good care of this vineyard, but he's going to stop. He's going to stop providing this care and let it all dissolve, according to verse 7. Um, remember that you and I have been grafted into the house of Israel and to the people of Judah in Jesus Christ. Take a look at Romans eleven seventeen. Verse 4 is the turning point where he says, What more could I have done? In verse 7, we also have a word play. He says, instead of justice and righteousness, God gets bloodshed and a cry. Um, the word, the Hebrew word for bloodshed sounds very much like the Hebrew word for justice, and the word for cry sounds very much like righteousness. So we have a word play. And it, that is a very dramatic conclusion to the metaphor being used here. Verses 8 through 24 are a collection of oracles. Each one is introduced by an outcry, which is literally hoy, translated into English as ah, and they appear in verses 8, 11, 18, 20, 21, and 26. In verse 8, there's excessive accumulation of land. This is greed. In verse 11, there is self-indulgence. In verse 18, there's falsehood. Falsehood that encourages others to sin. In verse 20, there's deception. In verse 23, there's corruption. And in verse 22, there was arrogance. Verses 25 through 30 give us the verdict for for these charges. There is images of foreign invaders coming in verse 26. Now, the prophet probably has in mind Assyria because that's who he sees looming, ready to destroy Israel, the northern kingdom, which will happen in 722. But it will actually end up being Babylon that destroys Jerusalem, and it will be after Isaiah's time, around 580-something, I think. Verse Chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, are Isaiah's famous temple vision. Though this is not the first oracle in his book, it's usually considered to be his call story. And usually those call stories appear at the beginning. Um, If it's not his call story, it is at least a commissioning to his task as a prophet. All the signs of a call story are here. There's a theophany, which is a vision of God, an objection to the call, a sign or a reassurance, and a commissioning. Um, You can compare this call story to that of Moses in Exodus 3, Gideon in Judges 6, and Jeremiah in chapter 1 of Jeremiah. This call comes around 742 B.C. Isaiah is in the temple in Jerusalem, or at least he is in his vision. And you can also cross-reference this with 2 Chronicles 26, verses 21 through 23. He mentions seraphim, which is the plural for a seraph, which is a type of angel. These angels had two to three pairs of wings, and they are the highest level of celestial beings in the hierarchy of angels. They're mentioned in the book of Enoch and Greek, in the Greek book of Revelation, which are both outside the Bible. 
and are mentioned um, seven times in the Hebrew Bible, twice in Numbers, once in Deuteronomy, and four times here in Isaiah. The word means burning, um, which may refer to the fiery colors that they have, or it may refer to the burning of a bite like as of a serpent. Um, It is plural in Numbers and Isaiah, um, so it's portrayed as a seraph is a a a fiery flying serpent. Um, This could denote some kind of non-human looking celestial being, or it simply could be the fiery appearance like bright white, like the clothes that we see elsewhere in the Bible and the transfiguration. The church father Origen believed them to be, believed these seraphs here to be Jesus and the Holy Spirit that we're seeing. Um, the description may also, as of burning, may also reflect the purification ritual that he undergoes. Now, we're also a little familiar with angels as cherubim. Cherubim are the angels who stand guard over the Ark of the Covenant, and Judaism ranked cherubim all over the place. Um, sometimes they are really high up with the seraphim uh, and thrones, and sometimes they are quite low, like second from the bottom. Ezekiel has an odd description for cherubim as well. Uh, but cherubim came to be associated with the Greek god Cupid and the Roman god Eros, and that's how they got reduced to small, plump, winged boys. That is not the biblical description of cherubim, and um, cherubim and seraphim as angels are mighty, created celestial beings. Isaiah surrenders to God and God's will before he has any idea what God is going to send him to do. In verses 9 through 13, God is not telling Isaiah to choose words so that people cannot understand. God is preparing Isaiah for his preaching to be relatively unsuccessful, for the people to be stubborn and resistant and not hear. Verse 9, um, cross-reference it with Mark 4.11 and Jeremiah 5.21. And so with this, the first six chapters of Isaiah comes to a close.